Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Good morning, everybody. It's good to... Good to be with you. Again, I know Bill said it, but good morning to those of you joining us online. Glad you're with us. Um, like, like Bill said, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're here for the first time, I'd love to connect with you and just say hi to you after the service. Um, today, I'm going to continue in a series we've been doing called Best Supporting Role, where kind of like the Academy Awards, right? It's not just the lead roles or the lead actors or actresses that get awards, but also those who are supporting roles, supporting actors and actresses um, that we celebrate because we recognize that those, sometimes it's those supporting roles that actually make the lead roles look so good, right? And that's true, not just in film, but it's true in life as well. God is inviting us to be the supporting role in his story, right? In his story. And also to be a supporting role to those around us, those he's called us to love and encourage the people at work and at school with our friends, but also with our, our family. That's what I want to talk about a little bit today is how are we called um, to be supporting roles in our family? I want to start by telling you a story about a woman named Catherine. Catherine pr- played a very su- important supporting role to her family. Catherine was the youngest of five children in her family. She was the only daughter, so she had four older brothers. She was particularly close to the two closest to her in age, and then there was a little bit of an age gap and the two older brothers as well above that. But when Catherine was 15 years old, um, the children's, her mother died. Her mother died and she basically became the matriarch of the family at age 15 and had that responsibility. But after high school, she went on to college here in Ohio. She excelled in math and she was actually the only one of her siblings to go to college and graduate from college. Um, She became a teacher and she did that for 10 years but after, after 10 years, one of her brothers was in a terrible airplane accident, almost died. Actually, the person beside him did die. And she immediately took emergency leave from teaching to care for her brother and to help him recover. And he did recover. Um, and her brother said that if it wouldn't have been for his sister, Catherine, that he's not sure if he would have survived his injuries and recovered without her care and support. Catherine, after, uh, after that, did not go back to teaching. Instead, she continued to support her brothers by manage, helping them manage the family business as an administrator, bookkeeper, um, as the brothers were often traveling for work and were unable to keep up with the day-to-day finances. Basically, she spent her entire life caring for and encouraging and supporting her brothers. And it just so happens that Catherine's brother that was injured in the airplane accident was none other than Orville Wright. She was the younger sister of the Wright brothers, Orville and Orville Wright. And most people don't know they had two older brothers as well. Um, but she, they often would say that it was her support and encouragement in the early years when, they were un, when things were unknown and things weren't working, you know, planes weren't flying, that uh, it was often her encouragement and support that kept them going. So who knows if it would even be possible to fly across the country or across the ocean now if it wasn't for Catherine Wright. You know, in the Bible, we see a number of people, a number of lead characters in the Bible who would not have been able to do or achieve 
what, they, what God had called them to do if it wouldn't have been for the support of people like their family, including their siblings. You know, in the Old Testament, a great example of this would be Moses. Moses and his siblings, Miriam and Aaron, had a huge impact on supporting him. But the supporting character I wanna focus on today is not Miriam or Aaron. It's instead somebody found in the New Testament. And I'll give you a few hints, a few hints. Um, this person was most famously known for simply being an important leader's brother. Pretty much every time his name is mentioned in the Bible, uh, it's his name, comma, so-and-so's brother. That's what he's basically known for. Uh, he was actually one of John the Baptist's disciples before he became one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And I'm named after him. So if that doesn't give it away, <laughs> we're gonna be talking about Andrew today. Andrew, the brother and the supporting role of his brother, Simon Peter, and how Andrew was also a disciple and supporting role to Jesus as well. So let me just pray real quick and then we'll kind of dive into who was Andrew. Lord, thank you for today. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, that um, you, you care about all of us. You value all of us. You love all of us. And that you have a role for all of us to play. And so often you call us to support you and we're, we're, we're playing supporting roles in your story. You are the lead character. And so Lord, I pray today that as we look at the person of Andrew and who he was, that we would learn and take a part of his character and you would just put that on our hearts. You would help us to grow to become like him. It's in your name we pray, Jesus, amen. Amen. So who was Andrew? What do we know about him? Well, like I said, Andrew was the brother of Simon, also known as Peter, the Peter in the Bible who becomes Jesus' right-hand man. And now the Bible doesn't actually tell us which of the two brothers was older and which was younger. I think most of the time we assume that Peter was the older brother because he's kind of like the take charge personality, kind of like the firstborn typical leader personality. But church history actually tells us that Andrew was the older of the two. Um, the brothers, uh, Andrew and Peter, were from the town of Bethsaida, located in the Sea of Galilee, which when translated the town Bethsaida means house of fishing, which makes sense since Andrew and Peter's occupation was that of fishermen. They were fishermen, which is good. Good job to have if you live in a fishing town. Um, Andrew was, like I said, first a disciple of John the Baptist, actually before becoming a disciple of Jesus. And last weekend, Michael talked about John the Baptist and how there was one part of his sermon where he talked about how John encouraged two of his disciples to go and follow Jesus. And one of those was none other than Andrew. Andrew is also known as the protoclete, which is a Greek word and basically means the first called. Andrew was actually the very first disciple of Jesus. Most people don't know that. He was the very first one to, to follow Jesus and be one of his disciples. And I think that's a really big, big deal because in our culture, we like to celebrate firsts, don't we? We, we put up statues and name things after firsts. George Washington, right? First president of the United States, that's important. Name the capital after him, right? Put him on the dollar bill, right? We have the Wright brothers, right? First ones to, to fly in a motorized airplane, invent a motorized airplane, that's important. We've named museums and air force bases and have statues in national parks named after them. And Andrew, being the first disciple of Jesus, was a big, big deal 
Not only was he just the first, but it means that he was around for pretty much everything from the beginning. He was around from the start. You know, for all of Jesus' ministry, he heard all of Jesus' sermons and saw all the miracles and healings. He was at the Last Supper. When Jesus died and resurrected, he was there when Jesus reappeared to the 12 in the upper room. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in power and the disciples all began speaking in tongues and different languages in the streets, Andrew was one of them, right? When his brother Peter gave the first big sermon and like 3,000 people put their faith in Christ and the church just exploded, Andrew was there a part of caring for all of that, that early new church. Church history tells us that Andrew went on to be a missionary preaching in central Eurasia and around the Black Sea and was eventually martyred for it. He was hung on a cross, but he refused to be hung on a cross just like Jesus was. He did not want to be equated with Jesus or seen as equal to Jesus. And so in in humility, he was hung on an X-shaped cross. So his body was strung out like this and he died. Andrew was a very, very important person in our faith, especially as the protoclete, the first disciple. And yet his name is just mentioned a couple times in the New Testament, maybe like a dozen times in the whole Bible. And most of those times it's listed just in a list of all the disciples, you know, Peter, James, John, Andrew. He always seemed to be fourth. He was always, he was, it wasn't in the inner circle of the top three. Oh, there are only a couple other times where Andrew's really mentioned in the story at all. So Andrew was not the lead character, but he did play a very important supporting role to his brother and a very important supporting role to Jesus as well. And we can learn a lot, a lot from just the few times that he's mentioned in the few stories um, about the powerful influence he had on his family, on his brother, and about the powerful impact of his faith in Jesus. So I wanna talk about the powerful influence of his family first. Like Catherine Wright had a positive influence on her brothers, Andrew had a positive, powerful influence on his brother, Peter. And that's the very first time that we meet Andrew in the Bible, he's doing just that. It's in 1 John, I'm sorry, not 1 John, it's a different book of the Bible. John 1, uh, verses 35 through 42. And we actually looked at these verses a little bit last week but we're gonna look at them from a different perspective, which is kind of cool, this weekend. So starting off in verse 35, it says this. The next day, John was there, talking about John the Baptist, again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he said, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, there it is, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now we'll stop right there. Again, here at the beginning of the story, we find that Andrew is one of John the Baptist's disciples, that he followed John around, watching John do his thing, 
right? And John, we talked about last weekend again, was preaching a message of repentance, was preaching a message of get ready, the Messiah is coming. And he was preparing the way for Christ to come. And he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And I think it's important to realize that Andrew would have been there. He would have heard that and been a part of that and been assisting in those things. And, and all the while, Andrew's waiting too. He's waiting for, okay, who is this Messiah gonna be? When's he gonna show up? And so one day when um, John says, that's him, that's the guy, Andrew and this other unnamed disciple begin following him. And eventually Jesus apparently notices these two guys, you know, <laughs> tracking behind him or walking behind him. Maybe, uh, hopefully they weren't too creepy. Um, but, uh, but he says, what do you guys want? And they answer in kind of a, an odd response. They, they ask him where he's staying. They say, teacher, where are you staying? Which basically means, hey, we wanna come hang out with you. We wanna learn from you. We wanna spend time with you. And Jesus says, okay, why don't you come? Come and see, come and see. And we don't know exactly what was said or what happened, but they, they spent the day with him. And about the end of the day, Andrew believes. Andrew's convinced that this, this man, Jesus, is in fact the Christ. He, he is the Messiah. And so he, what is the first thing he does when, when he connects the dots that Jesus is the Messiah? What's the very first thing he does? Verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. It's the very first thing he does. He takes Simon to Jesus, and Jesus gives Simon this new nickname, uh, Cephas, or Peter in Greek, which means rock or stone. Basically, he nicknames him Rocky, right? And so Peter, Simon Peter also becomes one of Jesus' disciples. And as, we, as you might know, if, you've, you know, if you're familiar with the Bible, Peter goes on to basically be the, the primary leader of the disciples and the leader of the early church, all beginning with Andrew first telling him about Jesus and then taking him to meet him. Interestingly, Andrew always seems to be bringing somebody to Jesus. The few times he's mentioned, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. There's a story we'll talk about a little bit later, the miracle of feeding the 5,000. It's Andrew who brings the little boy with the fish and the loaves of bread to Jesus. Later on in John 12, there's a story where Andrew's mentioned where he brings a group of, of uh, Greek Gentiles to meet Jesus for the first time. And so Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. He's always using his influence in that way. But one of the groups that we can have the greatest influence in talking to and bringing to meet Jesus is our family. It's our brothers and our sisters. You know, I, I'm sure that many of you who have brothers and sisters would say that at some level or at some point, you know, those, those siblings have had a positive impact in encouraging and supporting you and your faith, right? I bet a number of you here, um, maybe it was your brother or sister that first introduced you to Jesus in the first place because there's power in family. There's, there's, there's influence and weight, right? On, on our, the relationships that we have with our family that make an impact. You know, oftentimes later in the New Testament, we don't just see individuals come into relationship with Jesus. We see whole families come at once into relationship with Jesus, extended families even. You know, I think it's one of the reasons why the early church also took on this idea of thinking of the, the church as being like a family. 
You know, all throughout Paul's letters, he talks about the church as being like brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't he? He says, brothers and sisters, don't treat each other this way. Brothers and sisters, this is how you're called to love each other this way. He's constantly using this language, brothers and sisters, because, because the influence of family is powerful. It's strong. It's important that I think we remember that and that we look for opportunities to encourage our family members to either begin or to grow in a personal relationship with Jesus because our influence has more weight than we might know. You know, it's important that we look and see not only what Andrew did here in bringing his brother to Christ and the positive influence he had in bringing him to Jesus, but it's also important that we point out what we don't see Andrew doing, what we don't see happening in the stories with him and Peter involved. We don't see him complaining. We don't see him shouting or crying, this is unfair. We don't see any sort of sibling rivalry, rivalry or competition or comparing between Andrew and Peter at all in the gospels. You know, being the firstborn, uh, you know, and the first disciple, that would have held some weight typically. You know, Andrew would have been expected to be maybe more the traditional, take on the traditional leadership role over Peter. But in fact, Jesus flips that. And we don't see any evidence of Andrew pushing back against that or any rivalry or competing or comparing at all. You know, those of you who have siblings, uh, I'm sure at some experience, even at least when you were growing up, you experienced some sort of sibling rivalry at times. Just like Andrew in the Bible had one younger brother, I too have one younger brother. His name's Daniel. Uh, and just for fun, I thought I'd throw up some pictures or share some pictures of when we were kids. Um, uh, I'm the dark-haired one with big chubby cheeks. He's the cute blonde one. And uh, how many people had one of those red coupe cars? Or yet, right? Those things were always so popular. But I cringed a little bit at the middle picture with our like 80s matching horizontal stripes that my mom <laughs> had us dressed in. But... Um, my brother Dan and I grew up, we're best, best friends. Uh, growing up in the country, we were the neighborhood kids. That was it. Uh, there was nobody else to really play with. Um, but we did everything together. We had a great time together most of the time. But we also fought like crazy. We, everything was a competition. Everything, we, we were always trying to beat each other and one-up each other. Everything was about um, trying to do better than the other one. So much so that I'm convinced that my brother Dan and I are the reason that lawn darts are now illegal. <laughs> do you remember lawn darts? You remember those? I mean, who came up with that idea and thought it was a good one? Let's put, if you don't know what lawn darts are, they're, they're like giant darts, right? Not like, just like darts you throw, instead of throwing them at a board, you would throw them in the yard like that big weighted, you know, sharp point, and then you would throw them in the yard and try to land them in a ring in the grass. They'd stick in the yard. Um, but I just, but give those to a bunch of kids and they're throwing them straight in the air, right? And you're like, I mean, not a smart thing to do. Uh, but I remember one time, my brother and I, we were at a family party with some family friends that we tended to get together with a lot, kind of on what I would call cookout holidays, you know, like Memorial weekend, Labor Day weekend, those kind of holidays. And they had lawn darts. I think we were probably like eight and 10. I don't remember the exact ages. But we were playing this game. And I think the parents were all inside, like getting food ready. And they were probably looking out the windows thinking, oh, look at Andrew and Dan, the Hudson brothers, playing so well together. And so they realized we weren't playing anymore. 
At some point, one of us thought the other one was cheating and start, we started screaming at each other and we started throwing the lawn darts at each other. And literally the parents came running out and ripped them out of our hands and had to like pry them away from us. Thankfully, we were terrible at the game. Uh, so nobody got hurt. Uh, but we were constantly trying to beat each other at everything. And we get so angry and fighting with each other. Uh, it didn't stop at ages eight and 10. It continued well into high school. And um, I remember in high school, we had this, uh, for like ag woodshop class, I got the chance to build this, this like kind of nice bigger project. You want to throw that first picture up there? I built this arbor. Is that my parents' house? I think that's pretty good. And it looked pretty nice. It lasted for a few years. Eventually it rotted um, and had to be taken down, but that was a, a fun art, pro art woodshop project. Um, but two years later, my brother took the same class and this is what he built. He had to, look at that. <laughs> like he totally had to one up me. He built this giant gazebo and I kid you not, 20 years later, it's still in my parents' house. It still looks awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, it continued uh, a couple, you know, my brother, you remember the ACT test? If you take that like for college, like to, you know, uh, I did, I took that and I did pretty well. I, I did good enough to get into college and got a few scholarships. And um, my brother uh, took it three times. On the second time he took it, he got the exact same score I did. He took it a third time and beat me by one point, one point. So I've decided next month I'm taking it again, just to try to, no, that's not true. That's not true at all. You know, um, growing up, we were super competitive, constantly trying to one-up each other. But at some point, we grew up. At some point, we grew up. We stopped trying to always beat each other at everything. We stopped trying to always, you know, one-up each other and everything, to make sure things were fair or compete. And we actually started supporting each other. We started encouraging each other. Now, when we see each other, we chat on the phone, we're praying for each other. We're pointing each other to Jesus, right? At some point, we grew up. You know, one of the things that we don't see from Andrew in the Bible towards his brother, Simon, is any sort of sibling rivalry. Maybe they experienced it as, as little boys, but we don't see it in them as adults. We don't see Andrew saying, hey, wait a minute, this is unfair. I was the first disciple and I'm the older one. Why don't I get to be like in the lead role? We don't see that at all. Instead, we see humility in someone who knew he was loved by Jesus and he didn't have to earn or prove anything to anyone. And I believe Jesus is inviting some of us to grow up a bit more, to stop and set aside the childish rivalry in comparison and I think that is an invitation for some of our younger people in the room that are still living with their siblings. I know it can be hard sometimes, uh, but I think it's also a, a challenge for maybe some of the adults in the room to, too. You know, as adults, we might no longer be trying to build bigger woodshop projects, but what about bigger homes? We're constantly comparing the things that we have, right? We might not be comparing our accomplishments or our ACT scores anymore, but what about our kids' accomplishments? and our kids' ACT scores. We might not be so publicly, outspokenly competitive with each other that we're throwing lawn darts, at least I hope not, at each other, but are we secretly and privately frustrated and stewing and jealous and envious? You know, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says this about himself. In 1 Corinthians 13, 11, he says this, "'When I was a child, I spoke and thought "'and reasoned as a child, 
but when I grew up, I put childish things away. The invitation of Jesus for some of us today is to, to finally put some childish things away, to grow up a little bit more, grow in maturity with him, with Christ, to grow up when it comes to comparing, competing with our actual brothers and sisters, but also with our brothers and sisters in Christ as well, comparing ourselves to each other here in the church or to others at work or with our friends or our neighbors. I believe Andrew was able to do this because he simply knew being a disciple of Jesus was enough. It was enough. First or last didn't matter. Older, younger didn't matter. You know, greater position, lesser position doesn't matter. Simply being loved and valued and called by Jesus is enough. It's kind of like a rescued dog. You know, a rescue dog that has learned over time to trust that every day there will be food at home and a warm bed to go to, and I will be loved, and I no longer have to fight for scraps with the other strays in the alleyway. I've been rescued. I've been saved. That we can learn that that's how Jesus sees us, and we can, we can know that we don't have to fight for anything from anyone anymore. You know, and Andrew, we see this powerful influence he had on his family, on his brother and supporting him. But we also see the powerful impact of his faith in his in supporting role to Jesus himself. Even the slightest, smallest amount of faith can have a huge, huge impact when we join in supporting Jesus. You know, one of the few other accounts where Andrew is mentioned by name, I I talked about it just briefly earlier. It's in the miraculous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. You know, and oftentimes in this story, we focus on the miracle, we focus on Jesus, and we talk about the boy whose lunch is given, but Andrew's in the story too. And Andrew's actually has a very important role. And in it, we see that Andrew supports Jesus with just having just even the smallest, littlest hint of faith. And Jesus uses that little faith and it has a mighty powerful impact. So in John 6, I want to read it to you here, starting off in verse one. It says, Sometimes after, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down with his disciples the Jewish Passover festival was near. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for I already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said this to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. 
So they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now in this, in this well-known story, in this well-known miracle, a huge crowd is now following Jesus. It's not just Andrew anymore. He's not the only one. This huge crowd is following him. They're wanting him to, to see Jesus teach and see him perform miracles. And they followed him and it's late in the day and they're out in the middle of nowhere on this mountainside in the wilderness and there's no food. And so Jesus, he's with all 12 of the disciples here. All 12 of them are sitting with him. And Jesus turns to one, Philip, and says, hey, Philip, you know, where are we gonna get enough food for these people? And Philip is thinking like, honestly, like I think I would probably think, like I think most of us would think very pragmatically. Like, yeah, I don't see how that's gonna happen. <laughs> you know, that would, that would cost more than half of a salary for the whole year to just give everybody just a, a, a nibble, a bite. Like that's, we're not gonna be able to do that. And, and it's interesting to point out all the other disciples were here. All the other disciples were listening to this and none of them said anything or did anything except for one, Andrew, just Andrew. Apparently, Andrew has gotten up and he's gone and done a survey and he's looking around a little bit and he's found one boy, one young boy with this basically a little Lunchable, right? I mean, that's basically what he's got. It's a little Lunchable, you know, two small fish and, uh, and five little barley loaves. These would have been small little biscuits and, and barley, barley loaves. The barley bread wasn't even the good bread. It was the bread of the poor, actually. It was, and, and, and that's all he has. And he brings the boy in this food to Jesus. And he says, I don't know how you could, this is gonna work, but, but, um, but here's this. And sometimes when I was reading, some commentators give Andrew kind of a hard time for this, kind of saying, see, he, Andrew didn't really believe either. He didn't really have a lot of faith. And, but, but I don't know if I agree with that because Andrew's the only one who went and tried. <laughs> He's the only one who tried. And, 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 and the fact that he brought the boy to Jesus says something. Because if he met the boy out in the crowd or something far, you know, and he said, oh, but that's not good enough. I'll just go back and tell Jesus nothing's gonna work. But he brings the boy to Jesus. So he must've had just the littlest, tiniest amount of faith. Not, not totally understanding, not, not knowing what, how or why or how it could possibly happen, but something in him must've said, maybe, just maybe Jesus can do something with this. And, and Jesus all along had planned had this planned out and knew what he was gonna do. But it's that little faith, that little faith that Andrew had that fed 5,000 people. Now I need to wrap up here. And so I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back out here, but I wanna make one final connection to this story. And it really connects with another, another story with Jesus in the disciples where the disciples get to a point where they, they're trying to heal this certain boy and they can't do it. And they asked Jesus, why can't, why can't we heal this boy? And Jesus says this to them in Matthew 17, 20, he says this. He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Faith as tiny as a mustard seed, not much bigger than a pen dot, can move mountains, he says. Even the smallest amount of faith can have powerful, powerful impact. You know, so let me ask you all this. Let me ask you this. Where in your life is Jesus inviting you to step out like Andrew, to step out like him, you know, to, 
to offer up the faith of a mustard seed, to offer up a little Lunchable. Right? You might not understand it. You might not know exactly or be able to comprehend how Jesus might be able to use it to make something happen in your life. But where is he inviting you to take even the smallest step of faith, smallest, tiniest step? Maybe in some part of your life, your, your finances or your health or your family, to offer that up to him, some insurmountable problem in your mind and trusting him that he can move mountains that he can use even the smallest a little bit to change your life. Andrew is a great supporting role to both his brother, Simon Peter, and to Jesus as he demonstrates for all of us how we can use our influence to, to bring our family, our brothers and sisters, our husbands, our wives, our sons and daughters, our, our, the people that we know and love and care about to Jesus. And, and also the powerful impact that even the smallest hint of faith can have in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand up? Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.